Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Good afternoon to our listeners. This is Dave Harvey. Highs are in the 70s today in Tallahassee, and it's a it's a time of year where there's a thick film of green pollen that seems to coat anything outside that's not in motion. But today, joining us for the Am I Called podcast is Richard Blackaby. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Richard has authored or or co-authored maybe over 30 books, and many of them with his father, Henry Blackaby. Richard is the president of Blackaby Ministries International, and that's in Atlanta, by the way. And Richard travels widely to, to teach on leadership among Christians, but also beyond the evangelical world to business leaders about uh, principles of leadership in the marketplace. Richard's been married for over three decades, has three kids, growing number of grandkids. Richard, it's great to have you with us today. It's good to be with you. Now, Richard, I want to talk about some of the resources that you've written, but one of the things that we, we love to do on the podcast is just to hear the journey of how God brought men into leadership, how they experienced the call to ministry. Now, for you, you've occupied a, a number of roles. You've been a pastor, you've been a seminary professor, uh, you're an author. Why don't you take us back to the early years where you felt God may be calling you into leadership. You know, what was happening in your world? What was happening in your, your heart back then? Well, yeah, those early years seem farther and farther away now. But uh, when I was a child, my father was a pastor. And I remember when I was uh, almost nine, uh, having a family meeting where my father and mother called in their children and said they, they sensed God uh, leading them to leave the church that we were in in California and uh, relocate to Canada to a little church with only 10 people left. Very discouraged group of people that actually had a for sale sign on the property when my dad went uh, to visit it. And uh, at the time, it just seemed like, boy, when God calls you, uh, it's tough. It's uh, It requires sacrifice. And I saw God do some great things. But uh, by the time I was a teenager, I thought, you know, I was proud of my dad, but uh, I wasn't sure that I had what it took uh, or that I was interested in doing what it took for God to use my life. And uh, it just seemed like a lot of sacrifice. It seemed like you had to be quite a godly person. And so by the time I hit university, um, I wasn't trying to rebel. I just wanted to keep a firm grip on uh, my own life and not do any. I, I guess I was driven as much as anything by what I did not want to do, which was uh, to speak publicly, to be the pastor of a church. And uh, and what I hadn't realized was that really throughout my whole life, I'm the oldest of five children, and I'm a typical firstborn. I was always organizing and leading. Uh, I If I stepped into any kind of leadership vacuum, whether I was just a child pulling into a campsite with my family on vacation or wherever we were, uh, it took me about five minutes, and I was organizing all the kids in, in the area to have a, a football game or something going on. And uh, and I was wired to lead. I just uh, I just didn't know if I could do it in terms of what God was wanting me to do. But uh, 
basically, my first year of university, God got my attention. And that's another old story, but uh, just needless to say, uh, it scared me to death. And I just realized then that uh, I had to take God's call seriously. And so I surrendered at that point. So this was in college? Yeah, first year university. I mean, I was just uh, enjoying being a university student, having a good time. Um, not necessarily living real immorally or anything. I just, I was happy to be a good person as long as God just left it at that. And were you going to school in Canada at that time? Yes, yes. It was university in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and uh, and I was, you know, I I wasn't necessarily sure what I was going to major in or what I'd end up doing. I thought about being maybe a high school teacher, something safe that I thought. Um, and in that first semester, uh, God really, I guess the beginning of the second semester, God just uh, got my attention in, in a way that was unmistakable. And I'll never forget, uh, Sunday morning we had an altar call at our church. My dad was still the pastor. I came forward and d during the music I just said, Dad, I've been running from God's call in my life, all my life, and I'm just not going to run anymore. Hmm. And uh, I went and sat back down. I thought that was it. I kind of had told the pastor the deal, and and that was it. But uh, when uh, the, the the music ended, my dad uh, kind of wrapped things up, and he said, "Folks, we've had someone come here today that has something I'd like him to share with you." And he he made me do one of the things that had kept me out of surrender in the first place, which was to speak publicly. Oh wow. So, so I stood up, and um, I didn't even go back up to the front. I just stayed where I was in the auditorium. I just kind of stood up right there and just kind of spoke loud enough to be heard and said, I've been running from God, and I'm just not going to run anymore. Whatever he wants me to do, I'm going to do it. And I sat down. It's a one-minute summary. Or, and uh, so Dad's about to close the service, and uh, and all of a sudden, another young person, a college student, steps up, and he says, well, don't stop yet. Uh, he said, if, if Rich has been running from God, I've been I've been even worse, and God's calling me into ministry. And uh, if Rich is getting serious, I, I need to also. And then another person stood up and had a similar testimony. And my dad had enough sense to get the pianist back up at the piano and said, "Let's play some more music." And uh, the whole altar just filled up with people surrendering to God's call in their life. And uh, we, we came back that Sunday evening, and all evening long during the service, people just testified of how God had spoken to them and how they had made a fresh surrender to Him. And And I remember looking at that and realizing that the moment that I got my life right with God, there was just a domino effect. And I, at that point, at the very first day of surrender to Him, I think God was showing me, uh, in part, what it cost me not to go with God. Um, God was saying, all these, you're a person, I've created you to be a person of influence. And as long as you held back, you were influencing everybody else to hold back. Uh, the moment that you fully surrendered yourself to God, all these other people were impacted to do the same thing. And uh, that, that set in motion for me uh, a lifetime of, of doing, just realizing no matter how difficult it might be. And, you know, a time, Jesus told us to count the cost for following him. But I think we also need to always be aware of the cost of not following him. Now, did and, you have a, a, a sense, Richard, of what that calling was that you were accepting when you stood up that evening? Was it? Did you feel like it might be pastoral ministry, or was it just a sense that I'm, I'm going to move towards Jesus and towards leadership? 
Well, I, I at the time I thought it was probably to be a pastor. I that's what I I grown up in a pastor's home. I I knew the need. I'd watched my dad and his church and missions start thirty eight other mission churches, and so I I knew the great need uh, uh, for pastors, and I I kind of felt like that's probably what uh, he was going to ask me to do. And so you know, I, I the interesting thing for me, I, I went off to seminary after I graduated from university. Or, got a degree, uh, got two degrees from seminary so I could be a pastor. I came back to Canada after I'd been in seminary in Texas, and uh, I got a church right away, started pastoring, and for for the next four years, it was everything I'd ever dreamed of. It, we were growing, uh, we were seeing uh, exciting things happen, and then one day I, I came home, and my wife was crying, and I said, what's, you know, what's going on? And she, she said, basically, she said, "Richard, I, I I feel like God's calling us away, and um, we we realized God was calling us to the seminary. I was going to be the president of the seminary for the next thirteen years, and uh, everywhere I've ever been, I've thought, okay, God, I guess this is what you've called me to do. So, I I plan to retire as a seminary president, and then a couple of years ago, God changed that up again and said, no, I want you to lead the nonprofit ministry that your dad started." which is what I do today. And and what my dad would say is, God doesn't call you primarily to a, a career, he calls you to a relationship. And um, I, I had to learn that. I kept thinking, just God, just tell me what to do. Okay, you want me to be a pastor? Well, then I'll be a pastor. And what I learned was, God just tells me who to follow. And uh, as I follow him, he'll take me to pastor for a while, but he, he may take me into the marketplace, he might take me to a seminary. It's not about where you're serving him. It's about who you're serving. Yeah, let's go back to that theme, Richard, because, um, you know, you, meant, you mentioned your dad. And I think I think the name Blackaby is probably associated first with Experiencing God, a mm-hmm. book that became, I think, an unexpected bestseller. I mean, I remember sitting and reading it some 15, 20 years ago and just being captivated by the idea that God is at work in the field and God loves me and God is inviting me to join him in the field where he's already at work. And some of those ideas that were just at the time somewhat revolutionary for me. And and I know there was a revision of it that you you co-authored, but, but if you wouldn't mind, take us back to the original edition of Experiencing yeah. God and talk about what your father was seeing that incited him to write it. What 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 was the trending? What was what was the needs that were becoming evident to him, or what was God doing within him? I mean, jump in in whatever place you want. There. Yeah. Well, uh, when he was a pastor in California, God really was blessing his church, and and uh, in the last year he was there, the church had really uh, grown and healed from some previous hurts. Uh, they really loved their pastor. They they the church voted to totally renovate his office suite. Uh, they voted to send him and my, my mother to Israel, voted for him to have some time to work on his doctor's degree, voted a big uh, raise in pay, a book allowance, and so on. And then my dad announced after they'd done all that, such such generous stuff, that he was leaving and going to a church that had only collected $90 in offerings the month before. And uh, so he, he transplanted his family of five kids 
to a tiny little broken down church, very discouraged, and there was absolutely nothing there. No money, no resources, no denominational assistance. It was just uh, God. And uh, for the next uh, 12 years, he was the pastor there. And in those 12 years, we started 38 other churches, started, started a Bible college, uh, totally overhauled, expanded the facility. Um, and really what, what I think God did was he just took my dad to a place where there'd be no distractions. Uh, the, 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 if God didn't intervene, it was going to mean a disaster. Uh, and, uh, and then dad just learned how very practical and real God was and that he was a person. He wasn't just a doctrine. He was a person that would guide him every day to know how to invest his life, uh, what to do with his time, what to say. And, uh, and God just did amazing things. And the interesting thing with that was that um, dad, would just, dad was just in a journey. He was just, God was just teaching him. And so people would just start asking my dad, hey, tell us about how you know the will of God. And back in the day, uh, oftentimes dad might be at a restaurant with him and he'd pull out a napkin there at the table and start sketching out these little stick figure diagrams. And it's funny because for years afterward, I'd have people come up to me and they'd hold up this napkin from some restaurant and say, this napkin changed my life. <laughs> oh, wow. And it was just the precursor to experiencing God. And uh, and so finally, he, he gets asked to speak all over the place. Uh, he's a nobody. No one's ever heard of him. But word would get out, hey, if you really want a guy that can help you know how to know God's will, get this guy from Canada. So he's doing that, and eventually a publisher comes to him and says, hey, uh, we love what you're teaching. We've never heard it taught like this before. Would you put it in a book? And uh, my dad just was so busy, and he had, he had no aspirations to be an author. He'd never submitted any manuscript anywhere or suggested ever writing anything. The publisher literally came to him and said, we've got to get this down. And then when dad was just really having trouble taking the time to do it, uh, they finally enlisted Claude King, uh, who was one of the editors, and they just said, follow Henry around everywhere he teaches this stuff, get it down on paper, and help him formulate it into a book. And uh, so so that's how really Experiencing God was done. And it really began as a manuscript from his, a transcript of his uh, presentations. And, you know, the, it's interesting because when the book came out, it was just like lighting a match to dry kindling. It was uh, just an explosion of response. They, they couldn't print the book fast enough. It just kept selling faster than they could print it. And they couldn't figure out um, why, because they hadn't advertised it. They hadn't put very much money into the design or cover or anything, but they couldn't keep it on the shelves. And what they realized was it had just met a real need. And, and even the way it was written, it basically was a transcript for a lot of it was and uh and so years later when now it's a bestseller and been translated into 50 60 different languages uh they had me come back to, to kind of clean it up and modernize it a bit and to be honest with you i was a, i was appalled i started going line by line through this classic book and i was really appalled at a lot of the poor writing a lot of the poor, the, the repetition. And what I realized was it was never really written as a book. It was a presentation. And so it has all the dynamic of a live audience, but it also has 
just the roughness. You know, if you're writing a book and you, you look and you see you've already used the same word twice, you think of a different word, but when you're speaking, you know, you're just kind of sharing what's coming to your mind next. And, uh, and one so. of the things that surprised me was, you know, you're going through this book and, and one of the first chapters, I think, is on knowing God by experience, which is an unusual theme to be hearing from a bunch of Baptists. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the, 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 because this idea of experiencing God introduces a subjective dimension into our relationship with God. And I think in some ways that seemed to be, at least among the folks that I was connected to and, and among whom the book was enjoying a lot of, uh, a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. It, that, that seemed to be one of the points that was resonating deeply with them. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, in your experience, is that is the, the, the fundamental idea that God can be experienced, is that part of what seemed to be connecting with people so deeply? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, subjective is one word to describe it. Personal is another. And uh, what we found was, and it, you know, my dad came out of a Baptist tradition, which really focuses on the Word, on the Bible, preaching and, and faithfully teaching the, the, the Bible teachings and doctrines. And so, you know, he was surrounded by people that had heard preaching and teaching on the Bible their whole life. And they knew all the Bible stories and the doctrines and precepts and commandments. But... Uh, but this book said you actually can experience that God. You don't just study about that God. You don't just believe in that God. You actually can know Him. When you, when you pray, it's actually a two-way conversation where He actually speaks back. He guides you. He he responds to your conversation. And uh, and that was absolutely just fundamental, a, a shift for so many people. And I probably the number one comment we received was, I've I've been in church all my life. I never knew that I could know God in a personal way. And that that kind of blew us away. We thought, well, who do you think you've been talking to all this time? Every time you said a prayer, what did you think was going on? And they would say, well, we were say, we were taught to say prayers, but we 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 never really thought of it as a real conversation. And uh and yeah, I I'd say also that was probably the number one um, criticism my dad received. The, the whole idea of subjective. It's like, well, you know, the Bible, we know what it says because it's in black and white, but, uh, boy, you, you add this subjective uh, aspect to our relationship with God, and who knows what abuses can come from that. And we'd say, well, you show me any doctrine in the Bible, and I can show you an abuse that comes from it. But the fact is, um, God is a person, and because he's a person, you have to learn how to relate to him as one. And uh, that's something that Sadly, so many of our churches have been, you know, people all their life going to church. They, and that's why it's dead. You know, that's why quiet times are so boring for so many people, because it's just a spiritual discipline. It's not actually meeting with a person. Well, the concept of experiencing God puts into play the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And, uh, and that is the, you know, that's the person of the Trinity that we we probably get most anxious, most nervous about, you know, I, I think of uh, Gordon Fee's book, that that his big tome on the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence, mm -hmm. and how the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God himself, which implied in that is the, you know, kind of the experiential touch point. 
And uh, I think it, it seems like what was happening is that your dad was 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 putting a new mythology, you know, into play in in a language that um, was non provocative and easily accessible. I, I think so, and I think part of why uh, it attracted people too is that, of course, there was a whole a Pentecostal um, approach that did magnify the work of the Spirit, but oftentimes it seemed a little. Uh, detached from the solid grounding of the Word of God, it was it was a little too experiential, not enough biblical. And I think what um, what happened with my dad was you had this Bible-based Baptist who actually dared to say that you can experience Him, but but you never you know you never discount the Word of God. The Word of God is foundational. It's what it's the anchor that helps you evaluate what you're experiencing. Um, you, you know, God's never going to speak to you and tell you to do something contrary to what you find in His Word. So you, you've got to have that Word as a foundation. But but th- with that in place, expect that God will relate to you. And so, you know, of course, Christianity is, we're always going through pendulums. You know, we're always reacting to an earlier abuse, and then we're overreacting going the other way. And I think that experiencing God just had a way of finding this very healthy balance between the Word on one side and the Spirit on the other, and saying these aren't, you know, mutually exclusive. You you can actually fully embrace both, and and then have a rich Christian life. So was the revision that it went through back in 2008 was that simply related to? Um, the editing of the of the material as you described earlier, or was were there things missing that you thought needed to be added? Well, there's a couple of things they had me do, and they, that really was my task. Was uh, they I, and I had been a part of the original writing. I was a field editor, and uh, as Claude King would assemble the material, he would send it to me and a couple of other people to work through. So I had been a part of the original, but. But in this one, they just gave it to me. And one one of the things was just clean it up. It's uh, there's some awkward. There were a few sentences I wasn't even sure what it was saying. I I remember after a couple of days of just grammatically working through the text, I thought to myself, why did this become such a bestseller? It's it, in places it's not written that well. And what I realized was it's because of the message. It was it was not the the, the you know the wisdom of men. It was not just uh, flowery language. It was just truth that. In places, it wasn't even communicated all that uh, coherently, but it but it was true, and people realized that. But uh, but there were also a few uh, questions that had arisen because of the study that we thought here's a great chance just to go ahead and embed answers right into the the text. And then also, to be honest with you, when my dad first wrote it, he was a Baptist. He he let, it was based on his experiences leading Baptist churches. So he he had the word Baptist in there all over the place, but we but every denomination in America was using that that book, even even groups that you might consider to be a cult. Uh, I mean, you know, monasteries of Catholic nuns were going through it. Uh, Seven day events, whatever you, you every spectrum you could think of, Pentecostals and so on, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Anglicans, and so there are a lot of things in there. I thought, you know what, we don't even. Let's just. Rem- this is not about what God does with Baptist churches. This is just what God does with His people. So, so I intentionally removed every denominational distraction from the book to say um, this is how God works with people. And so, 
that was also. And then the, the last thing was we just had so many stories. We, we just were inundated with experiencing God's stories. And so we thought after all those years, we should just insert some of those stories right in the book that had been so powerful. And so that, that gave us an opportunity just to actually bring some real live illustrations from experiencing God and put it right in the book. And so it's, we've, it's really been well received since that new edition came out. Now, Richard, I remember reading um, the book that you and your father co-authored, Spiritual Leadership. And, and one of the things I noticed in that book was that there you seem to have a very healthy doctrine of, of leadership, that the sense that God appoints leaders, that they should assume responsibility and and, uh, and exercise their gifts, but, but also a, a very robust respect for God's activity among the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't simply one, it wasn't simply the other. And I'm just curious as to how you... You know, how did you come in your experience to harmonize those two things? Well, I think it had a lot to do with just the experiencing God focus of just focusing on where God is at work. And, you know, God wasn't just at work in the life of the leader. He was also working in the life of the people. And uh, he was and God, the spirit of God was trying to bring the whole church or organization uh, to move together. And so any leader worth his salt was going to join God and wherever he was working and the first place was always going to be in his people. So you, you had to respect that. And that's why, for instance, you know, we would say a lot of organizations, even a lot of churches say, well, the pastor gets the vision from God and then he tells everybody where they should go. And we would say, well, no, that same spirit who spoke to you also dwells within every believer in your church. And uh, so respect that if the spirit of God told you something, he's going to also tell all your people. So uh, watch for that. And 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 work with that so that you can be a part of what the Spirit of God is doing to move all of your people into the place that they should go. Yeah, I think I was uh, I was oriented into ministry um, with with more of an understanding that 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 God's activity flows in a more primary way through the leader, um, not exclusively, and you know people are an important part of it, but. There wasn't necessarily a, a corresponding sense of a congregational voice. It wasn't something that was intentional. It just wasn't as evident. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's a uh, a theme that has become more prominent for me, you know, in the last few years. Gratefully, but uh, you know, one of the dangers of that is that that you begin to assume, even as a leader, that that God's activity is always kind of flowing downward. Yeah. And, it, and it creates not only an imbalance but an overdependence on the from the people upon leaders. It it deepens the the split between the two. And I really appreciated when I was going through your book, seeing just the assumption of of God's ready and active um, work that among the people where He's initiating things, and and uh, that was really a a great theme. Hmm. Well, it's, you know, it, when I, I've had, I mean, we've spent a lot of time with pastors and we've had pastors say, well, you know, I, that's great that you led your people to do, do those things, but my people just won't do that. My people won't uh, respond. And whenever they've said that, we've always looked them in the eye and said, well, you're saying more about your belief in God than you are about your people. You're, you're saying that even Almighty God could not move in the hearts of your people and move them in a direction they need to go. 
And so what we realized was, you know, you, you need to go back and check your theology of God to say, does God just, is he limited just to working through leaders or does he know how to speak to the, the grassroots? Um, can God change the hearts of people? Can he bring unity in a formerly divided congregation? And what we found was really pastors had a pretty low view of God oftentimes. And as a result, they had to have a pretty high view of themselves and their leadership role. And of course, we're, we have an almost epidemic today of burned out pastors and pastors who have become celebrities because all the focus is on them. And we'd say, well, that's, you know, you, that, that stems from a low view of God that made you have to depend so much upon the leader doing everything. And we're not designed to do that. And that's why we've got so many of them burning out today. Richard, I want to uh, turn the corner here a little bit and, and give you uh, two different scenarios. I, I want to create these scenarios uh, for you so that you can respond by providing wise counsel to the two groups that I'm going to, to give you. So first, let's just imagine that uh, listening to this podcast is about you know uh, uh, 50 young men who aspire to leadership in the church. They, they feel stirred. They're excited. They're not yet serving in any roles, but they want to be. Um, how would you counsel them if you were standing in front of them with a microphone in your hand? Well, uh, lots, and I've, you know, I've done that so much, but I think if I were to really just boil it right down, I would say, here's a real, here's a real simple thing to practice. And that is simply this, always strive to be faithful in a little just don't don't worry about where at the end game where you're going to end up what you'll do don't waste a lot of time telling god what you can do what you can't do just simply be faithful in the next little thing that god gives you and when when you know i watched my dad that's that's what he taught me to do as a leader when dad uh, left uh, a good church in california went to a tiny church in in canada people said to him Henry, people, God's people will never hear from you again. You're just going to fall off the face of the earth. And my dad's response was, well, well, God will know where I am. And as long as God knows where I am, that's all that matters. And uh, so, you know, he just faithfully did the next thing God told him to do. No agenda, no personal ambition, except just to please his master. And I remember years later, sitting with him in the White House, while he was speaking to the president and to all kinds of Christian and military and government leaders and i remember just sitting there in the east room with this the thought came over my mind when he went to this little tiny out of the way place 10 member church in saskatoon all he was doing was being faithful in a little and he could never have imagined that years later he'd be standing there at the white house shaking hands with the president uh, but god just says if you're faithful in a little i'll give you the next thing and it's a wonderful way to spend your life just striving always to be faithful in the next thing that God puts in your hand. Hmm. That's a great illustration. Well, uh, let me let me change it up a little bit then. So, so imagine you're in a room with uh, with ten leaders. These these guys are older. They all have experience, at least a decade, maybe two decades in leading within the local church. But what unites these guys is that they are all considering some kind of change in their ministry there you know might be another pastorate uh maybe they've been asked to a couple of them have been asked to plant a church or 
move to parachurch leadership. What are the general principles, and, and we'll wrap up with this actually, but what are the general principles for decision-making that you would offer to a group like that? Well, I'd, I'd begin by saying don't assume that you can figure it out on your own. Uh, don't, don't just gravitate toward what makes sense to you. And you'll have some good friends, colleagues, associates who'll say, well, you would be so good at this or you're good at that. Uh, that's fine to hear all that, but take all that before the Lord and uh, let him guide you. Because I've just seen too many times in Scripture as well as personally that often God's next assignment does not look like the last assignment. It will build on the last assignment. But if God wanted you to keep doing the same kind of things, he might as well leave you right where you are. So uh, I've walked with a lot of senior leaders, and and, and God wants you to keep growing. I think part of why God took me out of the seminary after 13 years was because I, I liked it. I, I enjoyed the, the work, but I, I found that I didn't have to keep growing in order to do that job anymore. And uh, the moment you stop growing is the moment you start dying. And and so I kind of expect that periodically God may give me a fresh new challenge it, for no other reason. It doesn't mean one job is more important than the other, but he just wants me to keep depending on him and to keep trusting and growing. And so I, I found personally, and as I walk with many others, that you can almost count on it that right after you've experienced some of the greatest success you've had, that might well be the moment. Every, every ministry I ever left, I left when it was at its peak, when things had never been any better. And then God said, at that point, you've been, you're successful. You're not desperate for me anymore. Let's, let's change it up and put you into a new role that you're not so good at. Um, and you're going to have to depend upon me again. So, you know, I've kind of learned just to expect that. That, and, and that doesn't mean you always change jobs. Sometimes it just means God adds a new dimension to your job that will stretch you. But, uh, but I basically I would say when you start to get that restless spirit, um, that feeling that something's about to change, that may well be the spirit of God saying, you know, you've been faithful here. It's but I'm now I'm going to introduce something fresh and new in your life. Don't be, don't be afraid, uh, but it will be exciting because it's going to stretch you. And uh, I've learned to trust my wife. <laughs> she, she has typically seen that a change was coming before I did. I was typically so focused on my work that I didn't realize that things were changing around me. And so I've learned to, to trust her voice. I've, I've always had a group of people that I prayed with and who knew me that uh, would recognize uh, that my journey was taking a turn, and they often would give me great uh, counsel. So I'd, I'd be sure to have all those in place, uh, talking to my wife about it, uh, talking to other men I met with regularly, putting it before the Lord. Uh, don't be surprised if he adds a dimension that you never anticipated. You'll look back later and you'll realize it all fit together, but at the time it may seem kind of crazy, uh, just not something that you would have thought of on your own, but it's what God wants. And, uh, and the last thing would be just don't be afraid. I've known lots of people as they got into more, you know, farther down in their career. I mean, they had a good salary. They had lots of respect. They, they'd, they'd been in their home for a long time. And all of a sudden God says, leave this comfortable pastorate and move to this little nonprofit take a cut and pay, move your family, and it scares a lot of people. And 
and a lot of and, and it may well be that all of the that they've done so far is just preparation for this great season of ministry but i've also known lots of people that chose to play it safe and to say you know we've lived in this town now for 20 years um i you know i really kind of need this level of, of income or, w or whatever else and when that invitation comes it may well be the primary contribution they'll make in their entire ministry or leadership career they don't accept that because it's not in the county that they currently live in or it's not right in the field that they're comfortable with and so i'd say that there, there probably will come a moment if you've been a faithful leader where a change will be required uh don't be afraid to embrace it it might it may well be uh the single greatest thrill of your life is taking on that role and seeing God do things that amazes you as, as he performs them through your life. And it, it seems like the idea that the mission advances through sacrifice and through risk is a, is a theme that is resonant throughout not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament. You know, I think about Genesis 12, where God's speaking to Abram and saying, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. So he just knows, he doesn't even know where he's going. You know, he just is supposed to be sacrificing his home and uprooting his family and obeying God because God has called him to to get in motion. And I, it, it seems like so often when it comes to gospel mission and seeing the gospel move forward, God God's inviting us to be willing to take a step of sacrifice because that's inherent to the nature of gospel expansion. Yeah, and just historically, people have never changed the world by playing it safe. And we are constantly striving for comfort, and, uh, and Christ is constantly trying to push us into Christ-likeness and, uh, and sacrifice. And so I, I, you know, I'm at a point in my life, I, I don't want to make any needless sacrifices, but... Uh, I also realize that the greatest contributions my life has made has been when I've typically been uncomfortable and I've been stretched. And you know, I'm just challenged by Hebrews 11:6. It says, "Without faith, it's impossible to please God." And uh, we're always trying to get our life into a place that doesn't require faith. And the moment we do that, our life, our leadership, our ministry is no longer pleasing to God. Folks, there are many. Blackaby books that are worth reading, but if you only have time to read one, let me encourage you to grab Experiencing God. It's it's published by B&H. Um, Richard, thank you for joining us today. And, oh, privilege. And, and please pass along a huge thank you to your father for giving the body of Christ Experiencing God. Well, I'll do it. He always is thrilled to hear that people are using it and continuing to promote it and be grateful for it. For our listeners, one quick thing in closing, uh, apart from the podcast that we do with folks like Richard and Carl Truman and Paul Tripp and Randy Alcorn and some others, we, we also have a free assessment test that you can take at amicalled.com. And that test has actually recently been upgraded so that there's feedback from the spouse and the pastor that's also solicited in the process. It's still free, so you can log on right now if you want and... Uh, and let us serve you with this tool. So this is your host, Dave Harvey. Thanks for joining us at the Am I Called podcast.